So if you would look with me at Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and verse 17, and if we could stand together for the reading of God's Word this morning. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Father, as we come into this text this morning, we ask, Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would move in us. I pray that you would help me as mouthpiece of your word to communicate your truths, not merely my own ideas, that you would shape us, open up my heart, open up the people in this room, the hearts of the people in this room, that we might receive your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name, amen. I want to speak to you this morning on the title, Not Ashamed of the Gospel, Not Ashamed of of the gospel, and I'm going to move this because I'm afraid I'm going to knock it over because I tend to move around too much when I preach. <laughs> Amen. Not ashamed of the gospel. Not ashamed of the gospel. A few years ago, I met a young lady named Benicia. She was working as a waitress at the time at a restaurant that my wife and I would often frequent. And uh, we got in conversations with her. She was easy to connect with. She was from Nepal. And uh, was really interested in where she was from. And she would talk about how beautiful Nepal was. And she was from a family that uh, was very hospitable. I guess that's a big part of their culture there. Uh, they had a, a home that was uh, also a hotel, and she said, if, if you come and visit us, she said, my parents would put you in the best room of the house, and we would be put in the worst rooms of the house, you know, and she said, we should, if we ever visit Nepal, we should come and visit her when she moves back, and uh, because we got into this conversation and made a connection with her, uh, I asked her at one point uh, what religion she was, and she said she's Hindu, and uh, so I asked her if we could meet sometime and talk about, I said, I would like to learn more about Hinduism from you, and I would like to uh, be able to share about Christianity as well. And so we met up and, uh, at, at the restaurant there, and uh, I asked her about Hindu. Tell me about your, your religion. And so she went through all the traditions of being a Hindu. Um, I was struck by the fact that she had no confidence in the afterlife. Um, she had a lot of concerns about the afterlife. She knew that her religion provided a lot of traditions that she enjoyed, but no real confidence about life after, de after death. So for that reason, she was actually interested in what Christianity has to say. And uh, so I asked her, I said, do you, do you, uh, have, do you know anything about Christian, Christianity? And she said, no, I don't. And she said, but I do know four Christians. I commute one hour every day with four Christians. And I said, oh, cool. Have they ever told you anything about Christianity? And she said, no, they haven't. And, and that no, they haven't just kind of struck me and stuck with me. In the moment, I was happy for the fact that I was the one that was able to tell her about Jesus and Christianity. But I was also sad. Not because I felt superior to these other four Christians, but because I too uh, much so resonated with these other four Christians. I was sad because I had been so many times that Christian who had opportunity after opportunity, after opportunity, to share Jesus with somebody that doesn't know Christ. 
And for whatever reason, I never actually told them about Christianity. Why is that? Maybe I was embarrassed. Maybe it didn't feel like it was the right time. Maybe it, I didn't feel like it was my place. Maybe I didn't feel like I had enough relational rapport with them. I've got to build more of a relationship. Maybe I felt like I would be too churchy for my other Christian friends who are overhearing the conversation. And then I get to Romans chapter 1, verse 16, and Paul's testimony, where he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And it leads me to this question, even in my own life. Why is it that I am often ashamed of the gospel? Or I could include you in this. Why are we too often ashamed of the gospel? Martin Lloyd-Jones said, if you've never been ashamed of the gospel, it's probably not because you are such an exceptional Christian. He said, if you have never been ashamed of the gospel, it might be because you've never quite understood the gospel with clarity. Why? Because the gospel does come with offense. Tim Keller outlines four reasons as to why the gospel uh, comes with offense and why, listen, in our flesh, I'm not saying it's good to be ashamed, but in our flesh, as human beings, why it feels like there are so many reasons to be ashamed of the gospel. The first reason it's offensive is because it declares our human inability to save ourselves. Meaning, since salvation through the gospel is free and undeserving, it doesn't give that moral person any benefit over the less moral person. The person who feels like they're pretty decent, like they're a pretty good person, can't really look down on anybody else or feel better. Second reason the gospel is offensive is, is because of this. To believe that Jesus had to die for us offends our self-righteousness. We at our core want to believe that we human beings are good. And to say that Jesus actually had to die because of our badness offends our concept of us being good. Third reason the gospel is offensive is because it says that nobody is good enough to be saved. Meaning, if you don't come to, the gospel, uh, to Christ through the gospel, if you don't trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, there is no possibility for salvation. If you are not on that last day found in Christ, you will be in hell. Amen. And we're going to get to the fact that all of this is good truth. Fourth reason why it's offensive is because the gospel is about Jesus suffering and serving. Um, not first and foremost, conquering and destroying. And we're to follow Christ's model, which means that we are to suffer, that we are to serve. And this offends the sense of a life lived for safety or a life lived for retribution or anger. Not to mention the fact that when, when you talk about the gospel with somebody, you're talking about things like sin, faith, Heaven, hell, judgment, God's law, morality, need for grace, all of this sounds like foolishness to the world. So I wonder if you've ever been ashamed of the gospel. 
we're in the book of Romans, and Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 15 is Paul's fairly lengthy introduction, meaning we haven't even got to the meat of the book yet. And this is our third sermon. The first uh, section of Paul's introduction uh, focuses on a quick summary of the gospel. The second section focuses on Paul's affections for the Roman Christians. And now we get into Paul's thesis statement. Well, in verse 15, right before the thesis statement, Paul says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. And I think that right there is his turn to his thesis statement. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. Verse 16 begins with a four. Here's the reason. I am eager to preach the gospel to you. Four, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And then he goes on. Four. He's going to give us reasons as to why he's not ashamed of the gospel message. And I don't want us to be ashamed of the gospel message. So let's just follow Paul's argument here, and I want to show you five reasons that we should be confident in the gospel, and therefore not ashamed of the gospel. The first reason is this. It's because the gospel reports what is good. The gospel reports what is good. Look at verse 16. He says, for I am not ashamed of the, what's the word there? I mean in the Greek. Oh, 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 okay. Evangelion. Um, Angelion is a word that means message, and u means good. Let's put this together. The gospel then means? Good message. It's a good message. Often referred to as good news. The, go the word gospel itself means that this message is not bad. But this message is good. He doesn't say, for I'm not ashamed of the message of Christianity, but he gives the message of Christianity a nickname. And that nickname is the good message, the good news. And then he goes on with another four. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for these reasons. Here's, here's the reason that I have a shameless proclamation of the gospel. Now, the word gospel here is not referring to the gospel content. You know, gospel can be used in a number of different ways. It could refer to, for instance, the cross of Christ. It could be saying that he's not ashamed of the cross of Christ, and that's partly included in here. But I, I think John Calvin is right, who points out the fact that Paul is actually talking about the proclamation of the gospel. Why is that? Well, it's because in verse 15, he says, I'm eager to proclaim the gospel. And so here what he's talking about when he says gospel is you and I and him proclaiming the gospel, sharing the gospel. I'm not ashamed, he's saying, to share the message of Christianity, this good news. Why? Because it's good. You know, when Rome would enter into a land and conquer it, Rome would use this word, euangelion. It's a Greek word. It's a Greek idea. And they would go into the land and they would say, good news, Rome has conquered. You are now Roman citizens. You have all the benefits of the Roman Empire. Paul is appropriating this word, using it for the kingdom of God. He's saying, Rome is not the good news. There's good news. Yeah. And that's that Christ has conquered. Amen. Good news. The kingdom of God is among us, and you can come in, not to the kingdom of Rome, but to the kingdom of God, Amen. and be recipients of all of the benefits of God's kingdom. It's good news. For this reason, Paul never has an apologetic tone when he talks about the gospel. You know, sometimes we might say, well, you know, I don't like this part of the gospel. Here's truth. This is a hard truth. And, I, you know, honestly, if I'm going to be honest, I don't like this piece of the gospel. Paul never has that apologetic tone, does he? Yes, some of it is offensive. Yes, the gospel is a stumbling block. I mean, consider 
these poor Roman Christians in their own world. The, 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 the pagans in their world considered the Christians to be atheists because they were uh, not worshiping the gods. That's ironic, isn't it? While the Jews looked down on the Christians because they thought the idea of a crucified Messiah, especially on a Roman cross, is quite shameful. And the idea that he rose from the dead, and that there's this kingdom here that's not physical, but it's spiritual, and you enter it by faith, sounded like foolishness to the pagans, the Greeks, and to the Jews. And even for us today, there, is, there are so many reasons in our flesh that we could be ashamed about. But Paul never has an apologetic tone when he talks about any aspect of the gospel. Why? Well, let's, let's just follow this logic really quick. God is good. The gospel is God's message. Thus, the gospel is all, every aspect of the message is Good, yes. So even though it is hard, a stumbling block for some, even for those hard hearts, the gospel comes as good news. Second reason Paul is not ashamed of the gospel is because the gospel restores sinners to God. Look at verse 16, he goes on, he says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for, all right, he's going to give you his reasons for not being ashamed. It is the power of God for salvation. Everybody say power. 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 Where do we see power in Paul's theology? We got to go back to Exodus. How does Exodus begin? The Hebrews are enslaved in Egypt. For 420 years, they're, they're now forced to make bricks without straw. Their babies are methodically and strategically being murdered so as to wipe out the whole race. They are, as my mom would say back in the day, they are between a rock and a hard place. The phrase rock and a hard place comes from Homer's Odyssey where the main character Odysseus is uh, 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 passing through this treacherous area and there's a deadly whirlpool on one side and a man-eating monster on the other side and basically death is surrounding him. And he has no place to go. He's between a rock and a hard place. There is no good option. What were the, op what, what were the two options for the Hebrews? They could have rebelled against Egypt and certainly been destroyed in their rebellion, or they could have tried to run away from Egypt in their weakness and drown in the Red Sea, or probably most likely been slaughtered along the way. Oh, they were between a rock and a hard place. They had no option. Everything was dim until the end of chapter 2 in Exodus where it says that the cries of the suffering reaches the throne room of God. It says God hears and God sees. And God, with His mighty hand, on His own, without the help of the Hebrews, brings them out of Egypt, splits the Red Sea, they walk across on dry, dry land, and in Exodus chapter, uh, chap chapter 9, verse 16, God says, For this purpose I have raised you up. Why have I done this? Why have I brought you out of Egypt into the land? For this purpose. To show my power. And Paul here says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation the gospel doesn't contain power the gospel doesn't point us to power the gospel doesn't talk about power but the gospel is the power of God the power of God for what the power of God for salvation well what does Paul mean when he uses this word salvation Salvation has two concepts to it. The first is deliverance. 
to be delivered from something. For instance, in Egypt, salvation is the Hebrews being delivered out of where? Egypt from Pharaoh. But what we see throughout the unfolding of God's revelation is that the people of God have a bigger problem than even Egypt. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says that we are saved by Him, Jesus, from the wrath of God. This idea of deliverance, that there is a final judgment coming on sinners, rebels of God, and that's the wrath of God. Salvation is to be saved on that final day when Jesus comes again and God's judgment comes for sinners. Salvation is to be delivered from God's wrath. But there's a second idea of salvation here, and that's the concept of healing. Uh, forgiveness of sins. Restoration. Salvation heals the sin-sick individual. Now, where is the power for this salvation? He says the power is in the gospel. What that means is this. Listen, listen, listen to this. He says the gospel proclaims. So meaning when you, in your frailty, in your feebleness of words, try to share the gospel with a lost individual, he's saying that the proclamation of that gospel message has the same power which brought the Hebrews out of Egypt. It's the power of God. The third reason Paul is unashamed of the gospel is because the gospel reaches for the whole world. It's not just for a select few. But who is this gospel message for? Look at verse 16. He goes on to tell us. He says the gospel is the power of God to everyone who believes. Now this is almost too good to be true. Are you saying that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation? For me? A sinner who just believes? Are you saying this comes by faith? Are you saying this comes by faith alone? There's a flyer in your handout today, by the way. Paul doesn't say the gospel is the power of God to all who obey. Paul doesn't say the gospel is the power of God to all those who follow the law. Paul doesn't say the gospel of, is the power of God into salvation for all those who are good. What does he say? He says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Well, what is belief? Is belief in and of itself a work of righteousness? Well, Paul goes on to explain that we are not saved by our works of righteousness. So if that's the case, then what is belief? Well, I think we should understand belief first to not be some kind of good thing that we do or believe through which God now owes us salvation. Does that make sense? Meaning, you are not saved because you are such a good believer in God. As if God now owes you some salvation. Oh man, look at how he believes in me. Look how much faith she has. I just got to give them some salvation. No, if that was the case, then belief would be a work of righteousness. Whereas Titus chapter 3 verse 5 says, we are saved not because of righteous things that we have done. Uh, Hebrews 11.8 helps us. This is where it says that Abraham believed. This is going all the way back. Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Meaning, Abraham was declared to be righteous before God, not because of the quality of his belief, 
but just simply because God in his mercy counted Abraham's reliance on him as complete righteousness. I read an illustration on this, which I thought was helpful. Imagine you're given a million-dollar check. What do you have to do? (laughs) Yeah, it's yours. All you have to do to receive that is, is to endorse the check. You put your name on it. You receive it. You say, this is mine. Now, does your signature earn you a million dollars? You know? Like if somebody were to uh, uh, be like, I don't know, you're walking around because you just spent a million dollars and you got new, new bling and clothes and everything, and the person that gave it to you looks at you and you just look down on them like, hmm, look at me. And they're like, you know, I gave that to you. And you're like, no, you didn't. I signed the check. I earned it. It doesn't make any sense, does it? When, when you receive a million dollars, which I'm sure happens to us all the time, we just receive it. I mean, that's, that's the way belief works. Belief is to say, this is for me. He died for me. Not just theoretically for somebody, but he died for me. And I endorse this. I say, this is for me. I'm I'm receiving it. I'm relying on God. I'm trusting in God. Why? Well, because our whole salvation is built on this idea that we put our full trust into the God who restores sinners through the blood of Jesus Christ. So to believe is to stop trying to earn God's favor. It's to stop, it's to, it's to rest from our work of self-righteousness. It's to stop trying to build up our own sense of importance before God. And belief is to just rest in the work of Christ. The work of Christ whose blood was shed on the cross, taking the wrath of God for your sins and all who turn from their sins and trust in Christ have the promise that they are freed from their sins one day completely and now, even now, forgiven, freed from the penalty of your sin. Christ, who for our sake became sin. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Who is this offered to? Verse 16 goes on to continue, uh, continues to tell us. He says, for everybody who believes, to the Jew first, and then also to the Greek. I think what he's saying there is that the gospel has come first to the Jews, and then it's gone to the Gentiles. Some theologians argue that it might mean some sort of uh, preeminence of the Jewish uh, community as the original recipients of the gospel, meaning Abraham is yours. There's a specialness to this message for you, and it might mean that. But I I think the thrust of Paul's teaching here is that the gospel is for everybody, for both Jew and for the Gentile. So why are we unashamed of the gospel message? It's because the gospel didn't just go to a select few, as if we are just some kind of like little niche sort of group of people for whom the gospel is for. But no, it's to everybody. Is the gospel for your child? Yes. Your child needs the gospel. Is the gospel for your brother who you don't even talk to anymore? Yes. Your brother needs the gospel. Is, your, is the gospel for your neighbor who gets on your nerves? Yes. Your neighbor needs the gospel. The gospel message is for everybody. I want to ask us this question as we apply this for just a moment. Who is it that you write off? Who is it that you feel is too, off, too far off from God? They would never believe in Jesus Christ. Who is it that you believe is is truly beyond the power of God for salvation. 
Maybe some of you would say, yourself. I'm not sure if the gospel is for me, you may say. And listen, if belief is something that we muster up on our own, then you're right. There's a lot of people that we can write off, including me. But if belief, as we talked about uh, uh, last week, if belief is indeed itself a gift from God, if belief is something that God does for us, allows us, gives us the power to believe, then that means that everybody can believe. Like there's nobody beyond the power of God. The hardest heart can turn to God in, in, and receive the forgiveness of God and believe in Jesus Christ because, because the power of, God, uh, of salvation is in the hands of God. So it's a little bit of a handle for us to grab onto. As you think about your unashamedness of the gospel, here's one way that we can apply it. Never decide someone's eternal fate for them through not sharing the gospel simply because you don't think they would believe it. Leave that up to God. Be unashamed of the gospel because it's for everybody. Going on, my fourth point here is as the gospel is for everybody, fourth, what does the gospel show us? Well, the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. So in verse 17, he goes on to say, for in it, it meaning the gospel message, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Well, that word, that, that uh, phrase, the righteousness of God, may have three meanings according to the commentaries. The first meaning is this. It could be referring to the distributive righteousness of God. Distributive righteousness is sort of the negative aspect of God's judgment in which God distributes His judgment on those who deserve it. If you think of like a court setting where somebody receives a guilty verdict and then they're sentenced to life in prison, that's what you could call distributive justice. They got what they deserved. Now, human courts never make mistakes. Yes, they do. As a matter of fact, last fall I read a story of a man, 84-year-old Isaiah Andrews, who was finally released out of prison after 46 years of being wrong, wrongly convicted of murder. Look, even when humans try to be righteous, we make errors. Human courts often make mistakes. And this is why we, I think a lot of times, people, some people don't like the idea that God is a judge. Because judges in our minds are not always righteous. Juries in our minds are not always righteous. But the righteousness of God is actually seen in His judgments. So when we talk about God's distributive justice or righteousness, what we're saying is this, is that God in His judgments never makes a mistake. He always judges right. This could refer to God's distributive justice. That God is the judge and his wrath will be placed in the right spot. It could also refer to his definitive righteousness. What I mean by that is God's action of establishing what is right. So if you think of uh, going back to Egypt and the Hebrews, the, God's definitive justice is God removing the Hebrews out of Egypt. He's establishing what is right. He's releasing the slave. He's taking his people to a place of safety. The righteousness of God is seen 
as God acts in salvation and establishes what is right. The righteousness of God, thirdly, could mean the declarative righteousness of God. Well, this is the act of justification, you being made right before God. How does that happen? It's not that you're actually made right before God. I'm sorry, you actually are. It's not that you actually are made right, righteous. For example, let's just, just look around for a quick second. Let's see if we can find somebody in this room who is perfectly righteous. If that's you, go ahead and stand up. <laughs> no, You've got to stay seated, brother. But are there people in this room who are saved? And now, in order to be saved, you've got to be righteous. How is this possible? Well, we're going to get to it later in Romans, but it's possible because righteous, uh, justification is a declarative righteousness. It's that God has declared you to be right, even though you're still a sinner. So, for example, if I were to tell my child, like, hey, uh, if, you, if, you, if your room is clean, I'll take you to the park. And I go up, and the room is a mess, and I clean his room for him. And then I go to him, and I say, hey, your room is clean. Let's go to the park. I'm treating him as if he was obedient. Does that make sense? Now, we can debate whether or not that's good parenting or not. Every analogy falls short somewhere, right? But my point is this, is that God, even though we're still a mess, God treats us as if we're perfect. He, 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 he declares us to be righteous. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So, so which one of these definitions of the righteousness of God is it? Well, I think it's all three. I think in the gospel message, the whole of God's righteousness is put on display. Meaning, God in the gospel message distributes His wrath on the cross of Jesus Christ for our sin. Christ becomes the recipient of our judgment that we deserve. And the blood then covers God's people. And then in doing so, we see that God rescues us and restores us to Himself and brings us into a place of salvation and a place of safety. And how does He do it? Uh, it's because God has declared us to be righteous. The gospel displays the whole of God's righteousness. And so when you come to the gospel, what you see is an open invitation to enter into and enjoy the righteousness of God. Not because of the things that you have done, but as the old hymn uh, that we sing says, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners who are plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Hallelujah. Are you thankful for the gospel of God? Are you thankful for the righteousness of God that is put on display in the gospel? Well, what is our response? I just want to reiterate this. Our response to this is faith. So if you look at verse 17, he says, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just will, uh, righteous will live by faith. Faith, 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 faith. What's he saying here? What does he mean by from faith to faith? I think what he's just simply saying is, is that our response begins and ends with faith. It is all about faith, not our works. The monk Martin Luther had entered the monastery because he believed that by doing good that he could earn life. And the, the whole idea was based on this concept, even in the monastery, that good works will result 
in, in, in eternal life before God. That when you stand before God, the judge, that He will look at your works and see that you did your best and allow you to enter in. Martin Luther spiraled into fear and sorrow and anxiety and depression as a result. And the fearful Martin Luther said this. He said, but what works? What works? What good works? He says, what works can come from a heart like mine? How can I stand before the holiness of my judge with works polluted in their very source? And then he came to understand it's not by works, but by faith. And he came to understand that through Romans chapter 1, verse 17, this line. The righteous shall live by faith. Not by works, but by faith by utter reliance on the God who is able to restore sinners. Our works lead to death. Faith in Christ, in His work accomplished on the cross, leads to life. And that's my fifth point. If I could summarize, the gospel reports what is good, restores sinners, reaches to the world, reveals the righteousness of God, and the fifth reason we are unashamed of the gospel message is because the gospel rewrites our future. You see, so often we think of de our destiny as something that we create, or something very much so this worldly, what I can accomplish in this world. How many people I can win a victory over. What kind of position I can get in this world. My wife and I used to play chess together. But we quit because it was creating too many marriage problems. <laughs> you see, my wife and I are both very competitive. And we found that playing games is a bad thing for our marriage. Playing chess. Trying to capture the queen. Getting your pawns in the right place. Moving your rook. Strategizing. You know, that feels like the stress of life, doesn't it? How does my chessboard look? Can I move my pieces in the right place? Can I capture the other person's queen? Can I somehow get this position? Can I take that position? Can I earn that money? Can I get this kind of paycheck? And we live our lives in our minds trying to create our destiny on this chessboard of life. But there's an old Italian proverb which, which says, once the game is over, the king and the pawn end up in the same box. Meaning no matter who you are, whether you're a pawn or the king, no matter what your chessboard looks like in this world, no matter how many moves you've made, no matter how many pawns you've taken, even if you corner the queen, when the game is over, we all go back in the same box. From dust to dust. It's appointed unto man once to live. And after that, the judgment. Listen, check this out, church. The gospel rewrites our future. Changes our destiny. From death to life. From dust to recreation. From judgment to complete acceptance before God. Look at this last line. In verse 17, it says, the righteous shall live by faith in the ESV, the English Standard Version. Now, that's the way that the English Standard Version translates, interprets that phrase from the original Greek. And I think it's a good, a good translation. Who am I to argue with the translators of the ESV? But I think the way it's worded could lead us to misunderstand the oomph of the line it could lead us to believe that what he's saying 
is that the righteous are those who live their lives with a, a certain kind of quality of faith. Like maybe we, the righteous are those who have a strong faith. The righteous are those who live their lives in complete faith. The righteous are those who live their lives in a way that their faith is, is evident to other people. Now all of that's good. And that might be some application there. But Paul throughout Romans never talks about the quality of faith with which we live our lives. Rather, throughout Romans, the emphasis is put on the result of faith for our lives. When we have faith in God, what is the result of that? So the the English Standard Version translates this, the righteous shall live by faith. But the word-for-word construction in the Greek is this. The righteous by faith shall live. You see the emphasis there. The righteous by faith shall live. It's the result of faith. Life. Life now with God. And life eternal after death, saved from the judgment of God, brought into His marvelous light. Isn't the gospel good, church? Paul highlights in verses 16 and 17 the goodness of the gospel, and that's what I hope to do today. Yes, we are to not be ashamed of the gospel. We are to be bold in in the gospel proclamation. We are to have confidence as we talk to Hindus or as we talk to atheists or as we talk to, you name them. We are to have confidence in the gospel message. Not in ourselves, but in the gospel message proclaimed. I believe that Paul wants his readers to share in that that shameless proclamation of the gospel. But let me close with this question. How does he motivate them? What is the motivation for them to boldly share the gospel with other people? Notice, Paul doesn't lead with guilt. He doesn't say that if you're ashamed of the gospel, you're a lousy Christian. So don't be ashamed. He doesn't lead with guilt. Paul doesn't even lead with uh, uh, evangelism necessity. Meaning, he doesn't say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because there are 1.2 million people in Rome who are lost and going to hell. Look, there's a place to talk about the need for missions and gospel ministry. There's a place and a time to talk about the, the reality of how many people are lost in Baltimore City, perhaps. But that's not what motivates him to be bold in the gospel. What is it that motivates Paul to be bold in the gospel? It's simply this. It's because the gospel is good. You with me? Meaning Paul has comfort in the gospel, therefore Paul has confidence in the gospel. If you want more confidence in the gospel, church, know the gospel and know the comforts of the gospel message. Let me close with a quick story from when I was in college. Uh, When I was in college in our cafeteria, one day somebody pulled out this pie. I don't even like pie, by the way. But this pie was a peanut butter chocolate pie. And it had this nice thick layer of chocolate as a crust on it. It was unbelievable. I ate a piece of this and I'm like instantaneously won over. And I look around like, has anybody tried this pie? Like, I don't even like pie, but this thing is amazing. Do you remember this, Jess? She does, see? It was that good. And before you knew it, half the cafeteria would come in there and, and, and ask for this pie. If I came in the cafeteria one night and that pie wasn't available, I would walk over to the girl that was, that was opening up the cafeteria for us, and I would say, could you please go to the freezer and get the pie? 
She knew exactly what I was talking about. Half the people were eating it, and everybody knew that I thought this pie was amazing. Now, what was it that made me unashamed about this pie? It was the fact that I tasted the pie. I didn't have to try to convince you why it was good or how it was good. I just knew it was good. Oh, have you tasted and seen, church, that the Lord is good? His word is like honey on my lips. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. He's good, church. He's good through the good times, and He's good in our bad times. The psalmist says, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. And even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. I don't need to try and figure out how to make the gospel sound good. I just taste and see that the Lord is good. I know it's good. I know He's good. The gospel is good. Do you know that the gospel is good? Do you know the comforts of the gospel? Well, in your hearts, church, praise God. And be unashamed. Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for a good message in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you have called us as miserable, wretched sinners into your marvelous grace. God, we come to you now through faith, experiencing Christ in our midst. I pray that this gospel message would be rooted in the heart and soul of every single person in this room. I pray if anybody here has never placed their trust in Jesus Christ, that today would be the day in which they turn to Christ and say, that's mine. That message of salvation is for me. I receive it. Save souls. Fulfill Your promises to us, God. Keep us in Christ until that day we see our salvation fully realized when Christ comes again. And we are delivered from Your wrath, raised to the newness of life in new bodies, in a new world, forever living with You. It's in Jesus' name. And for His glory we pray. Amen.